This is the podcast of Redemption Bible Church, where applicational preaching is a distinctive of our church. For more information, log on to redemptionfw.org. Thanks for listening. Well, let's turn any Bibles over to Acts chapter 1, the New Testament, of course. Acts chapter 1, we're going to read five verses, 1 through 5. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in front of you. Just take that one. There's no charge for that. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while, saying, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Thanks, sir. But Angela is definitely better looking. Sorry. We love sequels, don't we? In fact, so much so that I don't think Hollywood knows how to make anything other than sequels right now, it seems like. Uh, so sequels like Jamie would love the Star Wars sequels, right? A New Hope. Star Wars, they, they have to stop them from blowing up the world with the Death Star, right? And then you get the Return of the Jedi where they have to stop them from destroying the world by destroying, wait for it, another Death Star. And you get the Force Awakens, the Resistance has to stop them from bl blowing up the world by destroying something that's sort of like the Death Star but isn't really the Death Star. Okay, so maybe Star Wars isn't the best example. Can you really call it a sequel if they just keep redoing the same thing over and over and over? <laughs> oh, I know exactly what I do. <laughs> so maybe not Star Wars, but how about maybe Batman Begins Into the Dark Knight? Now we're talking about good sequels, right? Or The Fellowship of the Ring Into the Two Towers, where these stories really progress the characters and the storyline really, really well. They endear you to the characters. They tell the, they tell the story. Man, I'm getting more feedback about this. Hopefully you guys are this fired up about Axe when we get there. <laughs> Most good sequels progress a story, right? They develop characters, they give us a fuller understanding, all of those things. Did you know that the book of Acts is a sequel? It is the second book of a two-volume set from the Gospel of Luke. And so as we approach the book of Acts this morning, we want to really view that even through the book of Luke, because without kind of understanding some of what was going on in the book of Luke, we can't fully understand the book of Acts. So let's look back at Acts 1 here, and let's, let me prove that to you. In the first book, O Theophilus, in the first book, so that means there was a first book, right? So uh, we're going to do a lot of flipping between Luke and Acts today, so just get ready. Uh, so flip back with me to Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 1. 
Luke chapter 1, verse 1 says this, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So Luke writes to Theophilus in both places, right? So let's start there. Let, let me give you a little context. So we're going to do a little teaching. We're going to do a little digging this morning. Is that okay? If not, I'm doing it anyway. So just get ready to go. So here we go. Context of the book of Acts. This is really significant to help us understand it. So who wrote the book of Acts? First of all, I mentioned Luke. So how do we know that Luke wrote the book of Acts and the gospel of Luke? Because it's not named in Luke or Acts that Luke was actually the author, right? So we do see that it's the same author because in both places he writes to Theophilus. In the second, he says that in the first book. So we clearly see that they're tied together and thematically they're massively tied together. We'll get to lots of that today. We know that uh, just based on the writing that it was a companion of Paul. So that narrows it down quite a bit to uh, people who were closely related to Paul, traveled with Paul to some degree. Um, so that narrows it down there. And then historically we see that Luke was mentioned as that author very, very, very early on. So pretty much from the time that these, the gospel and acts were paired together and traveling, Luke was attested to as the author. So we hold with church history and say that Luke was in fact the author of both acts and Luke. So who was the recipient? The recipient we already have talked about is Theophilus. In Luke 1.3, it's most excellent Theophilus. So who was this guy Theophilus? Well, we kind of sort of know a little bit about who he was. He was, uh, the most excellent phrase tells us that he was probably a guy who was a noble. Uh, he had some level of uh, provenance. He was a guy who uh, had some clout um, in the world. Uh, he may have been a patron who helped fund the writing of Luke and Acts. That's a, a pretty prevalent theory that's held, although we don't know entirely. Um, but what we do know about Theophilus, based on the writing, is that he was a Christian Gentile who was most likely wavering in his faith because of the pressure that was being placed on the church. That's who Luke is writing to. So Luke clearly had a wider audience in mind as well than just Theophilus, but he gives us no indication as to who that is. So, you know, often Paul in his letters, he's saying the exact church or region that he's writing to. That's not what Luke's doing. He, he's saying just this one person, but because of what Theophilus is going through, it makes Luke and Acts insanely practical for us as well. So that's who uh, Luke is writing to. When did Luke write this? This is a, this is a significant thing in uh, helping us understand how to best interpret the book of Acts. So somewhere between 62 and 64 AD, Luke wrote Acts. How do we know that? Well, in the book of Acts, Luke mentions that Paul is in prison. We know that that happened in 62 AD, so it had to be after that. 
And we also know that he mentions nothing of Nero's persecution that began in 64 AD. And given the content of the book of Acts and what he is talking about in terms of the gospel going forward to the world, it seems highly unlikely that he wouldn't have mentioned something about that persecution because this was a significant thing happening in the life of the church. So that happened in 64, Paul in prison in 62. So somewhere in between those two dates is probably the most likely uh, time that the book of Acts was written. Uh, So this persecution is on the cusp of really coming forcefully. Um, And in some ways is already present, right? Paul's in prison for the message. So all of that's happening as Acts is being written. The purpose, why did Luke write the book of Acts? Well, His purpose was pretty simple. Uh, He wanted to give a historical account and defense of the Christian faith. A historical account and defense of the Christian faith. faith. In Luke, it's all about who was Jesus. That's what he's writing in the Gospel of Luke. Who was Jesus? But in Acts, it's how the message of Jesus was spread throughout the nations. And Luke is a historian, more so than any of the other gospel writers. Uh, He was a physician by trade, and he was just very detailed and chronological in the way that he approached writing. He wanted to uh, make the, the book of Acts and the forming of the church a very historically grounded event. So um, he is a very accurate historian. Uh, when you even put him up against other historians of the time, his facts hold, tr- hold to be true. Um, he sought to provide that orderly account of how the gospel spread in order to give a confidence in faith, again, to a, a guy, Theophilus, who was struggling. Because we know that when we can see that actually these events actually occurred in history, they're rooted and they're grounded and they're deep and they have a foundation. And that's what he was trying to give to Theophilus. So this is probably the most important part when we talk about the interpretation of the book of Acts. Because here's the thing, when we get to Acts, if we interpret through the wrong lens, we can get to some really bad theology and even heresy very quickly. So we need to set the right stage for how we're going to interpret the book of Acts so that we don't go down those paths. So Acts is a narrative, it's a story. Okay, so stories are not always normative. They aren't what is always normally practiced. They are descriptive more than they are prescriptive. Okay, so he is describing events that happened more than he is prescribing how things should happen. So, for instance, when he talks about Paul going to the Aragopagus and preaching the gospel, right? So he's not, the, the application there to us is not get on a plane and go to the Aragopagus and start preaching the gospel, right? But there are things within that story that can help us to learn how to share the gospel more effectively. So it's descriptive, not prescriptive. So he describes how to help us share the gospel, but doesn't prescribe we get on the plane. So that matters because if we take everything in the book of Acts literally and normatively in the sense of how things should be directly applied to us, then we can get into some weird theological positions. Remember, Acts also is happening as the church was forming, right? So the church is learning and growing how to be the church. We stand, you know, decades and centuries removed from that and having the life of the church being uh, in a much different place than it was for them. So 
the church wasn't fully functioning yet there. And so they are learning all of that. But so what's the bottom line? The bottom line is this, and this is true of all biblical interpretation, but especially when you're interpreting narrative, it's this. What is the author's purpose for including this? Why did Luke put this in the book of Acts? Why is it there? If we can answer that question, what Luke was getting after for including it, then we will properly interpret the book of Acts, uh, and we won't get into heresy, Lord willing. So, that's some context. That's how we're going to approach the book of Acts. Context is set. Let's actually get to the first five verses of the book of Acts now. So, here we go. Here's our big idea for the morning. It's this. We have been empowered for a mission. We have been empowered for a mission. So we really get three key relationships of Jesus to the mission from this text. Three relationships of Jesus to the mission. The first is this. Jesus made the mission possible. Jesus made the mission possible. Let your eyes get back to Acts chapter 1. I'm going to read starting in verse 1 again, going through verse 3. It says this. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. The whole point, again, of Luke writing his gospel is to give us an orderly account of what Jesus did in his life. That's the point of Luke's gospel. And really what's happening here in verses 1 through 5, really, totally, is he's kind of giving us a summary of a lot of what he went after in his gospel. Specifically, we're going to spend a lot of time in Luke 24 today, seeing exactly um, some specific things he references, but just in in its entirety, look, all that Jesus began to do and teach. That's what Luke wrote about in his gospel. So Luke here is saying, here's what Jesus did on earth. He taught us a lot of things. He lived a perfectly sinless life. He was crucified, and he fulfilled a lot of scripture. This is one of Luke's actually main themes in his gospel and in Acts. This idea that the, the word of God was going forward and the message of the gospel was going forward via the word of God. There's a fulfillment of scripture that is referenced all over the place. As we look to Acts, we look to the sermons that are preached in Acts, all of those things, you're going to see they are drenched with the word of God. They reference the Old Testament in major, major ways. So, in fact, uh, Jesus, on the road to Emmaus, in Luke 24, he appeared to the disciples. This was after he was raised from the dead. He appeared to the disciples, and he did this, Luke 24, 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted, it, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus appears on the road to Emmaus to the disciples. He opens the Bible and he says, look, here I am, here I am, here I am, here I am. And mind you, that's just the Old Testament, right? They don't even have the New Testament. It's still in the process of being written. So we get a glimpse even in how we should be reading the Old Testament. If Jesus says he's all over it, then we should be looking for him all over it. Jesus is the message of the Bible. 
In Luke's version of the Great Commission, we get a, a, a little different glimpse as well. It says this in Luke 24. Actually, flip over there. Luke 24, verse 44. You're going to want to keep a finger in Luke 24 because we're going to be flipping back and forth to this chapter quite a bit. Luke 24, verse 44 says this. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, right? Everything written about me might be fulfilled, that's what Luke's going after. He opened their minds to understand the scripture. It's grounded in this idea, thus it is written. That's, this is Luke's version of the Great Commission here. Thus it is written. It was going to happen. It's the fulfillment of scripture. Jesus makes the word of God actually make sense. Without Jesus, the Bible isn't the Bible. Luke is saying, remember Jesus, his teaching, his life, his death, his resurrection, his essential, or his ascension. Jesus is the very reason that any of what I'm about to tell you about in the book of Acts matters at all. Without Jesus, there is no mission. Without Jesus, there's no message to proclaim. Jesus makes the mission of the church, the story of the formation of the church, the growing of the church possible. So Luke is saying, get your mindset on Jesus. If you're wavering, Theophilus, remember there is so much proof. It's why Jesus went around to people to prove out the gospel for 40 days after he was raised. The word proof in verse 3 in Acts 1 really means this, that that which causes something to be known in a convincing and decisive manner. He wanted to convince people that he had raised from the dead. He wanted that to be decisively known. It's actually one of the most attested to historical events of that time that Jesus of Nazareth raised from the dead. Paul emphasizes the same thing in 1 Corinthians 15 that says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. What's the point? Jesus is real. He's alive. He's seated at the right hand of the Father after his ascension. Jesus makes all of Acts possible. He makes the mission of the church possible. Without Jesus, there is nothing for us to be pursuing as we will be called to from the book of Acts. Daryl Bach said this in his commentary. 
What the early church said and did was rooted in and connected to activity in which the risen Jesus was involved. Indeed, the point is that without Jesus and his work, one cannot make sense of the church's existence and activity. So I have to ask you this morning, are you thoroughly convinced that Jesus should be the center of all that you do? Because if he was the center of all that the church was about, or the center of all of the formation of the church, surely he should be the center of our lives. Are you skeptical? Maybe you probably wouldn't say it out loud, but maybe you really wonder what it looks like to have Jesus as the driving motivation of your life. What does actually living for Jesus actually look like for you in the day to day? Can you, make exist, can you make sense of your existence without Jesus? Here's what I mean. Boil down your last week. If you take Jesus out, does your life massively change? If you go to your job and you take Jesus out, does it look different? Where you spent your money, does that look different without Jesus? Your relationships in your life, does that look different without Jesus? What got your gaze most last week? What purpose are you really, really living for? Is it to display, abide, behold Jesus? Because Jesus made the mission that we're gonna be called to, we're gonna see coming possible. Three relationships of Jesus to the mission. Jesus made the mission possible. The second is this, Jesus made the mission personal. He made the mission personal. So let's look back at verse two in Acts chapter one. Until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So what commands did Jesus give to the apostles? Why, what, what's there? The command is directly given to us in Luke 24. Luke 24, so I told you to keep your finger there, so if you didn't, shame on you. Get back over there. Luke 24, verse 46. Luke 24, verse 46 says this, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Again, this is Luke's version of the Great Commission. So this is what Jesus is telling the disciples as he's about ready to go, right? This is what you should be doing. And this is what uh, Luke is referencing again in chapter, or verse one chapter, Chapter 1, verse 2, there we go, of Acts. He had given commands. These are the commands. What is the command? Proclaim repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This is the mission that the church has been given. Proclaim repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Repentance. This is a, a massive theme all throughout Scripture. But Luke 3.3, 3, when it talks about John the Baptist, this, this wasn't new. The, look what he says about John the Baptist. And he, John, went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Luke is clear in his presentation of the gospel from Jesus' perspective. And all throughout his writing, as others proclaim, that the gospel requires repentance. 
We talk a lot about the gospel around here because the gospel is the message of this book, okay? So that's why we talk about the gospel all the time. But actually receiving forgiveness and grace requires repentance. And right now the church in America is doing a really good job at watering down that message. But I'm here to tell you this, church, a right relationship with God always requires healthy patterns of repentance. A right relationship with God always requires healthy patterns of repentance. This is why we can't minimize or dismiss sin. When we minimize and dismiss sin, we actually minimize grace. Grace looks so much greater when sin is great, right? Because we've been forgiven of so much more. Yes, God's grace is magnificent. His forgiveness is amazing. His mercy is unending. And all of those things are true, but practically grace and mercy and forgiveness are applied through repentance. Let me prove it to you biblically. Jamie shared this verse earlier, but 1 John 1.9 says this, if we confess our sins, if we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to cleanse us from our sins, right? If we confess. Repentance, forgiveness applied. To truly live in gospel thinking, repentance must be active in our lives. Has to be. If we bypass repentance and try to run straight to grace, we actually cheapen grace and we minimize the holy nature of God. God hates sin. We should hate sin. Truly hating sin means we should be repenting when we sin. But too often we treat our sin like a cute little baby Bengal tiger. Jen Wilkin tells the story of this guy named Antoine Yates from New York City. In 2001, he uh, decided that he was going to buy a cute little baby Bengal tiger to live with him in his apartment in Harlem. Good plan, right? This is not going to go poorly for him at all. That cute little baby Bengal tiger grew up and it ate 20 pounds of chicken thighs every day and grew to be 425 pounds. And in 2003, it attacked him and he ended up in the hospital. However, when he got, when the emergency room asked him what happened, he didn't fess up to owning this tiger. Instead, he said he got attacked by a pit bull. Pit bull, tiger. Not sure how he thought that was going to work in his brain, but whatever. Here's the point. Even after the tiger tried to kill him, he still wanted to go back to that tiger. He still wanted to hide it. He still wanted to have it. He didn't turn from his ways and tell the authorities. He kept going back to it. Isn't this too often how we treat our sin? We keep going back, like it's going to bring us something that it never will. Let me tell you, church, your sin is killing you. It is seeking to devour you. There is nothing good that is going to come from your sin. It is killing you. And so often, instead of being broken about that sin and going to repent to the only one who can actually bear the weight of that sin, we, we try to run back to the sin like it's gonna bring us something. We try to hide in it instead of running to the cross. So I have to ask you this morning, what's your baby tiger? What are you hiding? What do you keep running back to? 
Are you really broken over your sin? Are you more upset about offending a holy God or by the consequences of your sin? When's the last time you met your sin face to face and it stopped you in your tracks? And it made you get to the point where you're like, I need to repent right now in this moment. I'm gonna tell you, if you don't have a quick answer to that, you probably don't take sin serious enough. You've probably bought into the lie that you really aren't all that bad. And that sin really isn't that big of a deal. Yeah, I sinned, but. Yeah, I sinned there, but. Gospel-drenched believers don't minimize sin. They just know where to take it. Gospel-drenched believers don't minimize their sin. They just know where to take it. They repent to the only one who can bear the weight of their sin, and then they walk in forgiveness when they do. Church, we've been given a mission. Tell the nations that forgiveness comes through repentance. We don't water down that message because sin always leads to death. Always. That's why repentance is so important. Sin never brings what we think it will. Your sin will never, ever satisfy. The world's sin will never, ever satisfy. And so when we water down the message of the Bible and make things not sin that the Bible calls sin, we're actually leading people to death because their sin leads to death. And this is why the mission of Jesus is so personal. Why? Because we not only have to tell it to the nations, we have to tell it to ourselves each and every day. We have to live in patterns of repentance and living in forgiveness. We have to take our sin to where it goes and not try to hide it like some cute little tiger. This is biblical Christianity. This is what we're called to. Three relationships of Jesus to the mission. Jesus made the mission possible. Jesus made the mission personal. And the last, Jesus made the mission possible. No, I didn't misspeak. No, the slides aren't wrong. It's the same point. Here's why. What did Jesus tell the apostles? Look back at verse 4. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. What did Jesus tell the apostles? Stay in the city until I send the promise of my Father to you. Here's the mission. Go after repentance, forgiveness, preach that to the nations, but not yet. Wait. Don't pursue that mission without this promise. The promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit, who's been promised all the way back from the Old Testament. Here's a couple of places in the Old Testament that the Holy Spirit was promised. July, Joel 2.28, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Isaiah 44.3, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my Spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. 
It was promised in the Gospels. Here's just one example from the book of John, chapter 15. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, but because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. There's this promise that's being fulfilled in Acts 1 of the Holy Spirit indwelling us. It's the idea that Luke calls here the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He's saying, don't go attempt this mission without the Spirit indwelling you. Don't do it. The mission isn't even possible without the Spirit. So much so, right? Here's the mission, but wait. Why say that if we don't really need the Holy Spirit? It's surely true of the apostles from this story, but it's it's very true for us. Right? So to fully understand this, we we really need to get into this idea of what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit because this is one of those things that theologically has been hijacked by uh, various denominations or uh, belief systems. So what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Here is a commentator, Ajith Fernando's explanation. He says this, A traditional evangelical explanation is that while in Acts there were unique experiences of this baptism with the Holy Spirit, for us today such a baptism takes place at conversion, and the term baptism is used for initiation into the body of Christ and the resultant experience of the Spirit. So baptism of the Holy Spirit happens at conversion. Again, this is why we can't read the book of Acts as though everything that happens there is normative. They were living in a different point in history. Jesus died, raised, ascended all while they're alive. You think a couple things probably changed when all of that happened? Yes, it did. So one of the strongest arguments to prove that to you biblically from another place comes from 1 Corinthians 12. I'll throw it on the screen for you. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. See, some people would say that the baptism of the Holy Spirit happens over and over and over and over and over and over and over. We would say that's the filling of the Holy Spirit, not the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We'll touch on filling in a later in the book of Acts as that happens, but that doesn't fit with this passage in 1 Corinthians 12. When you are saved, you get the Holy Spirit at conversion. All were baptized by one spirit. He's writing to the church. In fact, the spirit is even the one who awakens our hearts to believe. The spirit is active and present in salvation. The apostles were at this unique place in history And their experience here is not normative. Here's the reality of all of that. Here's why it matters. Without the Holy Spirit, we have no ability to actually accomplish the mission that we've been given. That's why this phrase is in the definition of a disciple that we've unpacked for you. Why we put it in there. A disciple is one who is saved by Jesus and empowered by the Holy Spirit to grow into the image of Christ by beholding, abiding, and displaying him to the world. You can't behold, you can't abide, you can't display without the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not going to happen. Let me demonstrate that to you. Jamie. This is a football, Jamie. Oh, thank you. 
Sport, you sports one. ball. You don't bounce this okay, one, okay? Yeah, Doug, we haven't used you for a while, so we're gonna have you come to. Doug knows what a football is. I mean, all right, I'm gonna have you be the center. That's the guy who hikes the ball, okay? And you'll be a wide receiver, okay? Over here. I'll be a wide receiver. Okay, all right, Jamie, run the play. <laughs> I'm surprised you even hit the pulpit. All right, thank you. How's that work? Without somebody there to actually call the play, to snap the ball, none of that works, right? This is the Holy Spirit in our lives. He's that significant. Nothing in a football game is going to happen if you don't have somebody there to call the play, to hike the ball, to try to do something with it. This is the Holy Spirit in our lives. And yet, too often, we try to act like the Holy Spirit doesn't indwell us, right? We try to do it on our own strength. Try to do it in our own power. How much was that you last week? How can you functionally rely on the Holy Spirit more in your life? Let me give you a little hint. Think the last sermon series we just finished last week, prayer. It's a good starting place. This idea of praying without ceasing, of saying in a moment I'm weak, and I need the power of the Spirit that is alive in me to help me complete these things. Because here's the reality, church. We have been given a mission by Jesus. That mission is to preach forgiveness through repentance. But that declaration doesn't come on our own. The power to complete that doesn't come on our own. It comes through the Holy Spirit working in us. So I want to lean into that now. And I want to lean into that in prayer. Because yeah, we could sing a song. We could do something like that. But at the end of the day, I want to invite the Spirit to do that. Why? Flip over with me to Luke chapter 11. Why would we invite the Spirit? Luke 11 Verse 13 says this, if you then who are evil know how much to give gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give, what good gifts? Give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. So why do we ask for the Holy Spirit to help, to empower us? Scripture tells us to. So I want you to gather with somebody, can be somebody you came with, can be a group of people around you, I don't care, two, three, four people, whatever, and we're going to pray for these things. Pray for a deeper reliance on the Holy Spirit. Pray for a greater awareness of Jesus, and pray for a stronger passion to accomplish the mission that we've been given through the power of the Holy Spirit, okay? So gather up, do that now, let's go. God, you've called us something. You've called us to preach the message of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And yet, we have to stand here and say, we have no power to save anyone. We have no power to make anyone believe in the message that we've been called to send. God, that's a work of your spirit, and we need his help. God, we need to be more reliant on him. God, less self-reliant, less um, focused on 
our abilities, our skills, and more focused on the leading of the Spirit, the moving of the Spirit, the empowering of the Spirit. It's His work. And yet we get to share in it. We've been called to share in it. God, I pray we wouldn't fall to the temptation to water down the message. Because sin does not lead to where we think it will. And we all fall to that, right? We all fall daily to believing that our sin will bring us some pleasure, something more significant than what Jesus has already given us. God, forgive us for those things. God, help us live in patterns of repenting of those things. God, personally in our walks with Jesus, corporately in our relationships. God, I pray that repentance and forgiveness is something that is talked about and pursued within our small group ministry, within relationships that form in this church. God, may they be relationships that are full of repentance and forgiveness because you have given us the message that allows us to be fully known and fully loved because the gospel lays us all bare. It says we're all sinful. We all are in need of a savior. And so I can confess those things to other people because they're in the same boat I am. God, would you make that part of the culture of our church? Repentance and forgiveness. Would you make that part of the culture of our marriages? God, that we could seek forgiveness and repentance uh, from our spouses that we wouldn't be too prideful to do that. Would you help us do that as parents, God, that we would be parents who can go to our children and say, you know what, I didn't treat you rightly in that. Forgive me and repent to the Lord of those things, but to our kids as well. God, I wanna see the message of the gospel win in those moments. And repentance is so much a part of the message of the gospel. God, would you stir in us a deeper reliance on the Holy Spirit? Less self-reliance, more spirit-reliance. Would you deepen in us our knowledge of Jesus, but not just our knowledge of, our love for and our living for him? And God, I just pray as we approach this book of Acts together that you would give us a passion to accomplish the mission that you've given us through the power of your spirit. God, would we be people who are not just sitting on this message, but we would be people proclaiming that to those around us. Because you've done so much for us. God, would you deepen our love for your son Jesus? And so through that love, it would spill out into our relationships. God, it's in the precious name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Thank you, church. Have a great week. You were loved.